where we're studying, uh, page uh, 1004 in the Bibles there uh, in the seats. And uh, you might remember that this uh, particular section of the Bible is written to Christians who are being tempted to compromise uh, their confession of Christ, their commitment uh, to Christ. If you remember in Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and uh, verse 14, I think it is, uh, since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens and is at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have this great high priest, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold tight, you know, to our commitment to him and to who he is. And certainly that's a challenge in our world as it was a challenge for these folks in their world. And uh, last week you noticed uh, perhaps that we ended in chapter 5 of Hebrews and uh, verses 9 and 10 talk about Jesus being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, and then uh, the very next verse, verse 11, says, about this we have a lot to say. About this guy Melchizedek and Jesus, we have a lot to say. uh, But it's hard to explain, he says, since you have become dull of hearing. Now, I always thought if somebody didn't understand the sermon, it was my fault, right? Like, you didn't preach a good sermon. But now I find out, no, it's your fault. You've just become dull of hearing. If you don't get it, it's on you. It's not on me anymore, right? And I think that's what this author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, look, I have a lot to say about this Melchizedek. But you've become so dull in hearing. You're ready to compromise your commitment to Christ, your confession of Christ. You become so dull. And then there's a whole section here in, uh, from after verse 11 and through chapter 6 that, that talks about the difference between being an immature Christian and a mature Christian. It's a great section of scripture. It's just, uh, you know, um, it, it's just a great section of scripture. Uh, but uh, in Hebrews 6 and verse 12, this same word about being dull is used, it says, so that you may not become sluggish, but become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Remember, we started this whole thing way back in Genesis where God makes certain promises through Abraham to all people. And how do we grab a hold of those promises? How do they become ours in Christ? Well, through faith and through patience, you know, in the person of Christ, these promises become ours. But it's interesting when you read this, and I would suggest that I would encourage you to kind of read this section about maturity and immaturity, spiritually speaking, and uh, you'll discover that maturity in the Christian life is not about how much you know. Some people think, you know, if I just keep going to Bible studies, I keep learning more, that I'll be mature. No. Maturity is about your ability to take your beliefs and apply them in action to life. It's not about how much you know. It's about taking your beliefs and actually living those beliefs to the point where uh, they become actions in our lives. And so I'm going to skip all of that, come back to it later, but um, I want to get to this guy, Melchizedek. Um, Because I think if I were to ask you, hey, would you take a piece of paper and make a list of all your favorite people from the Old Testament? I doubt anybody would have Mel on their list. Melchizedek. Ah, he's one of my favorite people, you know, um, because we don't hardly know who he is. And so I kind of want to ask the question this morning, who who really is this Melchizedek? And um, 
there's only two places where, aside from Hebrews here, there's only two places in the whole Bible where Melchizedek is mentioned. There's only one place that talks about his appearance, you know, and then there's another reference to him in the Psalms about a thousand years after he appears when uh, David writes uh, Psalm 110. But he's very significant, and especially to us in this generation, because um, it's like he's a plant that God put way back in Genesis to enable us to trust in the person of Jesus Christ. He's like a parallel to Jesus. He's like a, a, in theology, he's called a type. He's sort of a prototype of Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to focus on to encourage people to hold fast to their confession of Christ and not to compromise who he is. He's sort of a, a prefigurement or a model or a foreshadowing of what's to come in Christ. And I love it when God, who is the only one who knows the future, there's about 2,000 years between Melchizedek and Jesus. And here's God planting this guy Melchizedek and writing scripture about him in a certain way so that we can have confidence that Jesus really is the man. He really is the son of God. He really did come from heaven and become a man and go to the cross and so on. And here's God planting this guy Melchizedek way back in the Old Testament uh, so that we can have this kind of confidence. And I think you'll be amazed, unless you're one of those dull of hearing type people, I think you'll be amazed about this guy Melchizedek. And that's really my um, purpose this morning is to try to convince you to put Melchizedek on your list of favorite people, you know, from the Old Testament. Um, and again, it's only because God knows the future that we can have such confidence. So uh, the author of Hebrews um, tells us, right, that we have this great hope. In Hebrews uh, 6 and verse 19, uh, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. When you put your trust in the person of Christ, you have a hope about the future. And I don't just mean between now and the time you die, but for all of eternity. We have this great hope because we have this great high priest... And uh, we have this sure hope, which is like an anchor for our souls. Our soul is the non-material part of us, right? We all have a body. We all understand that. We all have a soul, the non-material, the psyche, the, you know, the non-material part of our lives. And then we all have a spirit, the part of us that connects with God, body, soul, and spirit. And uh, this reality becomes an anchor for our soul when we live with hope. I think some of the saddest people I know are people who are out of hope. You get into some jam or life turns sour on you and so forth. And uh, if you have no hope that there's a God who can pull you through whatever you're in the midst of, uh, you're, you're an, of all people, I think, you know, in deep weeds. But we have this great hope, both in this life and in the life to come. And it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a, a forerunner on our behalf. Look, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is this great high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. He's not of the order of Aaron and the Levites and the old priesthood. He's not, a, he's not of the order of any human priesthood, Jesus. He's of the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see in a minute how Melchizedek, Melchizedek is different. So chapter 7, verse 1 uh, what do we learn? Who is this Melchizedek? Well, uh, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. First thing you notice about this guy, he's a king and a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, 
kings and priests, right? Separation of church and state. Kings and priests were two different. In fact, if we had time, we could go through whenever a king tried to act like a priest, he got in deep trouble, got leprosy, got, you know, judged by God in different ways. Whenever a king tried to transfer and do the priest job, uh, they would be punished by God. But this guy, Melchizedek, he is a king and a priest. And I think this is significant because, of course, Jesus is a king and he's our great high priest. This guy prefigures who Jesus really is. Jesus is ultimately the king of all kings, right? He's the um, king of peace, Melchizedek, um, it says there. And he's, his name, Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So in this one person, he is the king of peace and the king of righteousness together. Very different than the whole Old Testament uh, priesthood and very unique and very uh, significant when, when you start to think about how he prefigures Jesus. And uh, his priesthood, you'll notice, um, it says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem means peace, you know, shalom, we know the word shalom, right? Someday the Bible says Jerusalem will be the city of peace, Jerusalem, same thing, you know, someday will be the city of peace when Christ comes back and, and rules the world from Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and all of that. But the significant thing here is that this Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. And notice he's a priest of the most high God. He's a priest appointed by God like Jesus. He's not a priest because he's connected humanly to Aaron and to the old priesthood of the Jewish people or to any other human priesthood. He's a priest of the most high God. He's the king of peace, and he's the king of righteousness. If you look at um, the second part, uh, chapter 7, verse 2, the second part of verse 2, uh, the Bible says he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, right? He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is the source of peace, and he is the source of rulership all in one. He's directly anointed by God, just like Jesus, as a priest who is one. Now, I think this is really cool. If you think about this for a minute, this Melchizedek, king of, priest, uh, king of peace and king of righteousness, righteousness and peace always go together. Everybody wants peace, but there is no peace without righteousness, and there is no righteousness without Christ, and there is no even understanding right and wrong without God. Righteousness and peace go together. You cannot have peace with God, I don't care who you are, without righteousness, and the only way you can be righteous is through our great high priest, Jesus. There will never be peace in the Middle East until we get it right. And the only one who can describe what's right for the Middle East is God. There'll never be peace in a marriage. Right? Without righteousness, without doing the right thing. Until you can stop and say, what's the right thing for us to do and commit ourselves to it? then you can have peace. Righteousness and peace go together, and righteousness and peace come together only 
in the person of Christ. Because there is no forgiveness for unrighteousness apart from Christ. But the good news is, it's ours. It's free. We have this great high priest. And so peace becomes uh, available and uh, becomes a potential for us. If you just uh, take your Bible, and I just want to show you a couple places. We could spend more time here. But in uh, James chapter 3, uh, just notice how practically peace and righteousness always go together. All right? In James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above, all right? The wisdom from God, how to live from God, uh, is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Righteousness and peace always go together. You can't have peace without righteousness. And you can pick uh, any area you want. You can pick race relations. How are we going to have peace in race relations? Well, when we find righteousness, when we find what God says, how we should treat one another and so on, we can have peace. But apart from that, apart from God, apart from uh, God defining what's right, how, how are we going to have peace over moral issues? Can we all be at peace, you know, if the Supreme Court comes down and, and changes what God described as marriage? You can't have peace and unrighteousness together. That doesn't work. Righteousness and peace come together. There's a great uh, verse uh, in Isaiah uh, that talks about this. In Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 17, it says, The effect of righteousness will be peace. You do the right thing, and you will experience peace. The effect of righteousness is peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and security or trust forever. Eternally. What's the effect of righteousness? Peace, security, confidence, relaxation, quiet, not chaos. This is just a great, and, and I think you recognize in Isaiah, you know, chapter 9, do you remember at Christmas time we always read this, but this prediction about Jesus is that he's going to come and he's going to be a king and he's going to govern, but he's also going to bring peace. He's going to be the prince of peace, right? Uh, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government is going to be on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. The government's, can you imagine if Jesus ruled the world? The government's going to be on his shoulder. Hasn't happened yet, but the Bible talks about it coming in the future. Uh, and his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Peace. See, the two come together in Christ. And Melchizedek is a, a prefigurement. God put him there for our benefit to say, wow, Jesus really is the only one who can be uh, a, a go-between between God and us. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Righteousness and peace go together. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord himself will accomplish it. Make it happen. You and I aren't going to make it happen. You and I give our best efforts. Our whole world is trying to find peace all over the place. And we give it our best efforts. We throw as much money at it as we can. It's not the answer. Righteousness and peace go together. And uh, 
Jesus in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is called our righteousness. He's the only place where righteousness and peace can actually come together. One more uh, passage of scripture on this in um, Psalm 85, uh, verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace go together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other in the person of Christ. This is a passage that's a prophetic looking forward to Christ's coming and talks about how righteousness and peace kiss each other uh, in the person of Christ. So if you want peace, th- I think of a situation in your life where you're not at peace. I don't know, relatives, marriage, boss at work, neighbors. Pick some situation where you wish you had more peace. Find the right thing to do from God, God's definition of what's right, and do it and see if more peace doesn't come to that situation. Righteousness and peace, you know, kiss one another. All right. So Hebrews uh, 7, verse 1, that's this Melchizedek. He's both the uh, king of peace and the king of of righteousness. He prefigures uh, Christ. And um, this is a direct reference in chapter 7 to an incident uh, way back in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, if you want to read the background of time to uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 14, explain that, you know, Abraham's nephew Lot got uh, kidnapped and these uh, uh, rebel kings took off with the beat a, a bunch of cities and took off with all their stuff. And Abraham puts a little band of people together, goes after him, has God's favor to bring his nephew Lot back uh, from where uh, Sodom, you know, where he was and so forth. And anyway, so then all of a sudden on his way back, Abraham meets this guy, Melchizedek, comes face to face with Melchizedek. And uh, verse 17, if we pick it up there, it says, after his return from the defeat of uh, Shadalamor, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of peace, brought out bread and wine. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. We're in Genesis now. You know, we're way, we're 2,000 years before Jesus was born. He brings out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham, and he said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who, deli- who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, a tithe of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, uh, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. And uh, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshel and Mamre take their share and so on. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that the original uh, uh, beginning of the, of the um, practice of tithing started right here. Uh, that tithing isn't coming to us because it got built into the commands you know, of uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament after Moses came and, and gave the law and so forth. Uh, you know, later on, way after uh, Abraham, uh, as a part of the law, uh, the Jewish people were commanded to give God the first tenth of their crops and their herds and their money. You can read about it in Leviticus um, 27 or Numbers uh, 18. 
But it says here in Hebrews chapter 7, you know, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Way before the law, Abraham started this practice, if you will, uh, of tithing. And I want to suggest to you that um, what went on between Abraham and this uh, representative of Jesus, Melchizedek, uh, who was a type of Jesus, happened way before the law was ever established. Uh, Tithing did not originate with the law. It started with Abraham, uh, who recognized Melchizedek as the priest king of God and worshipped by tithing. This worship, like the basic act of worship or responding to this priest king uh, was tithing. And uh, it was simply a recognition of the greatness and the authority of God's priest king and Abraham's belief in him. Uh, tithing today, I would suggest to you, still recognizes the superiority of Jesus over myself. It's, it's one of the simplest and the easiest and the quickest ways to say, uh, not let go of my uh, confession of the person of Jesus Christ. It's an acknowledgement. This is my great high priest. This is the king that I serve. Uh, this is the one who is coming in the future and, and so on. And it, it, it's a testimony to the superiority uh, of who Jesus really is and my subjection and my submission to him. And uh, I would remind you that Abraham was called, you know, the friend of God. It's interesting, in James, again, uh, James was right after Hebrews, in James chapter 2 and uh, verse 23, he's called the friend of God in the Old Testament too, but it says the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham believed God. He's the father of all the faithful because believing God is counted by God as righteousness. It's how we become right with God. We believe him. And Abraham was the first to believe God. And um, as a result, he's called the, the friend of God. And if you think about it, you know, Abraham is really the patriarch of all believers. He's the father of Israel. Uh, Paul talks about him as the father of all uh, believers. But when he meets Melchizedek, he recognizes him as superior. He recognizes Melchizedek as a um, representative of God. And he responds with a tithe. He responds with a tithe. If you look at verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. How great must Melchizedek be for Abraham, who was the greatest person in the Old Testament, to bow down before Melchizedek and to tithe, right? How great this man must be. How great Jesus Christ must be for any of us to take the first tenth of whatever God gives us And to worship him through that uh, medium. When he met Melchizedek, he recognized him. And so the tithe today is the same thing. We recognize how great Jesus really is. Not because it's a law from the Old Testament. I would suggest to you that money is a spiritual issue. 
Money is a spiritual issue. I know a lot of people like to kind of sort that out and, you know, but I think money is a spiritual issue. You know, God created everything. God owns everything, including all the money in the world, uh, the whole material world, right, including us, right? Everything is his. He created it. It's given to us to manage for him. But he owns it. And we're managers. Money's really a very spiritual issue. And I think, you know, um, we in America here, we've all grown up in a very materialistic culture. Do you realize that um, 50% of the world's wealth is under the control of 6% of the world's population? 50% of the world's wealth is under the control of 6% of the world's population, which translated means 94% of the rest of the people in the world have to get along on half of the wealth of the 6% in the world. And most of us are here in America. And, uh, you know, we grow up in a very kind of materialistic society, uh, not even realizing it. And uh, most of it is here in America. But I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is my king. He is my high priest. He's my idol, my hero. It's uh, of him, you know... uh, the Bible says you know this, right? This is kind of interesting, too. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and verse 9, this is what you know about Jesus. If you know Jesus and you're a worshiper of Jesus, look what he, Paul writes. He says, for you know, you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the undeserved favor of Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is what you know about Jesus, that he emptied himself, that he humbled himself, that he became a servant and went to the cross and died in our place for our sins to make things right between. Although he was rich, he emptied himself, humbled. This is what we know about the Jesus that we came here to worship. And last week we saw, you know, Jesus was tempted just like we were, just like we are. And Jesus was tempted to try to find a way around the cross. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is like, Please, let this cup pass. I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Remember? Jesus was tempted to try to find an easier way uh, around this, you know? And I think it's unnatural to sacrifice. It's unnatural to give. It's unnatural for Jesus to go to the cross. He did it in obedience to the will of God. And it's unnatural for people to be generous And to give, it's unnatural to give money. And yet God, for God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know in America, uh, the average person, when you average everything out, the average person in America spends 34 cents of every dollar they have on housing. 19 cents of every dollar we have is spent on health. 17 cents of every dollar spent on food, on average. 20 cents of every dollar we have is spent on personal hobbies or education or movies, stuff like that. 7 cents of every dollar that we have is spent on our cars. And when you add all of that up, it's 97%, leaving 3% of our income Uh, most of which goes to pay interest because we spent money we didn't have in the first place. 
And so when it comes to God, there's just sorry, nothing left over. And that's why in the wisdom of God, I think he created the law that said, you're going to learn to trust me and confess me when you make me first in your life. And one of the easiest ways, I think, to do that is through tithing. Generosity toward God is not natural. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's unselfish. You know, babies are all about me. You ever have a baby? It's all about me. Hey, I'm hungry. Hey, I'm wet. Hey, you know, I want to get down. Hey, I want to get up. Hey, it's all about me. Maturity, if you read Hebrews 6, is all about giving back. It's all about appreciating what has happened for you, and it's about giving back, and especially to God. It's about acknowledging that, wow, my life and my future and my eternity and my forgiveness and grace has come to me from my God. How do I give back? And there's basically four ways, right? There's um, money. There's, uh, we call it treasure, right? But there's time, talent, and touch. Uh, Dan and I went to a seminar on generosity and talked about being generous with our touch, our involvement in relationships with other people. It's much harder than giving a tithe. If you get involved with people, it's messy. If you get involved with people on behalf of God, I guarantee you, it'll be messy. If you try to become an advocate for God and his righteousness and his peace, I guarantee you, you'd much rather write a check than get involved with people who you're trying to bring to Christ. Right? And time. It's much easier to write a check than it is to take time and serve God. We talked about the 80-20 rule in our elders retreat. Why is it that 20% of our people do 80% of the ministry? Why is that? Why isn't it the other way around? Why don't 80% of the people take time and, and take their talents and take their gifts and serve God? So that when there's an opportunity, like Dan got up here and said, hey, look, you know, in Bridgeport this summer, we've got, you know, these uh, six or eight opportunities and so forth. You know, why aren't people saying, well, where do I sign up? Now, that's nice for somebody else to do. You know, and... and how is it that we become generous before God? Generosity towards God, not natural. It's unnatural, and a tithe is the place to start. I think tithing is like putting training wheels on your spiritual life. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. When you tithe, and I don't mean this to be a formula for selfishness, but often when you manage God's money God's way, God gives you more. He gives you more to manage. He gives you more that you can give away. You know, and it becomes even more difficult as you go uh, forward. But God, it's like he blesses that and so forth. And it, it's kind of interesting. I, this helped me uh, an awful lot in my life. In um, Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus in verse 21, he says, Wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now, I always tripped over this. I thought Jesus made a mistake. I thought what he meant was... Where your heart is, that's where your money will go. But no, he said, you take your... It's very hard to change a person's heart. Would you agree? It's hard to change your heart. But if you want to change your heart, I know exactly how to do it. Take more of your treasure and put it with God. If I gave you some stocks this morning and I said, look, here's uh, you know, $100,000 worth of stocks and they're in GE. Where do you think your heart would go? What do you think you'd be reading tomorrow morning? The Wall Street Journal is what you'd be reading because your heart would be with that hundred grand, right? You'd want to know, how am I doing? 
If your treasure is with God, do you know what you'll be reading tomorrow morning? The Bible. Because you'll be asking, how am I doing? <laughs> how am I doing? You see, where your treasure goes, your heart follows. You can change your heart according to Jesus. And this really did help me. It's much easier to take a piece of change and put it in God's direction and find that your heart then is very interesting. Take some money and invest it in some people. Take some money and give it to some cause that helps the poor. And see if your heart doesn't go there and get involved and you want to now take a short-term trip there and you want to now adopt a kid from there and, and, and see if your heart doesn't change by investing in the kingdom of God. It's how it works. That's what Jesus said. And so uh, you, you, your heart will follow where your treasure really is. If, you're, if your treasure's in the stock market, I guarantee you'll be reading some electronic version, probably of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and if you want to change your heart, you'll be uh, reading the scriptures to find out how am I doing. And so uh, I, I hope that we at least tithe. I know that we don't. The average church person is, uh, you know, giving like 2% of their income. That's a good church person. And it's a mistake. We're cut. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, but notice this. You see, Abraham tithed uh, in Hebrews chapter 7. Abraham tithed, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. That's why I say, like, when we worship, God blesses. And he knows when we're sincere. And so uh, you read this here that um, not only did um, Abraham tithe to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek, Melchizedek then, you know, blessed Abraham. Um, they met Abraham returning from the slaughter, and Melchizedek, verse 1, blessed him. And to him Abraham tithed, and so on. And so uh, this is kind of interesting, too. When you think about this, Melchizedek blessing Abraham, again, if you go back, uh, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine 2,000 years before Jesus to give to Abraham. Bread and wine, of course, are symbols of Christ's body and blood shed for us and so forth. And, and uh, you notice in Hebrews 7 and verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The blessing that Abraham received came from a superior who was Melchizedek, who was a prefigurement of the person of Christ. Uh, Abraham, as great as he was, bowed in worship to receive this blessing from Melchizedek, this representative of God. And so I asked myself, you know, where do I look for my blessings to come from? Where do I look for the promises to come from? They come directly from God through Christ. Melchizedek and Jesus were superior uh, to Aaron and to the old religious system and to the Levites. And, and uh, our blessing comes directly from God through Jesus for us. In fact, uh, listen to the reasoning in verse 4 of chapter 7 of the author of Hebrews. He says, see how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tithe, a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, uh, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. He's still alive, this Jesus. 
One might even say that Levi himself, the head of you know, the whole uh, uh, priest system of the Old Testament, uh, Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You know, racial solidarity in the Jewish community is a very big thing. And what he's saying is that uh, uh, the generations of the Jews were still in the loins of Abraham when he worshipped Melchizedek as the representative uh, from God. And so, in a sense, before these Levites and before the whole tithing command thing was in place, uh, Levi himself had paid tithes uh, to this Melchizedek, this uh, head. And uh, Jewish people, again, you know, take this uh, solidarity of their racial uh, background very seriously. Um, and in Abraham, they all bow to this Melchizedek. Uh, and so, you know, why, why do you think it was uh, so necessary for Melchizedek and Jesus to come? And verse 11 of uh, Hebrews chapter 7 says, look, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If the Old Testament priesthood worked, we wouldn't need Jesus, is what he's saying. All of this is in an effort to help people hold fast to their confession of Christ, right? Uh, rather, the one named after the order of Aaron, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. We wouldn't have needed Melchizedek and Jesus if the old priesthood, if any human priesthood could suffice to make us uh, one with God and so forth. And then there's just one other thing about uh, Melchizedek that, again, I think is kind of neat when you think about it in relationship to Jesus. Uh, There's no record of Melchizedek's genealogy. We don't know who his parents were. There's, there's no record of his birth or his death. And uh, the author of Hebrews here takes that as being very significant because in the Old Testament, man, uh, to verify your identity as a priest in the Levite tribe, you had to trace your ancestry. You know, you know all those begots in the Old Testament about who begot who and who's the son of who and how that all works out. So, Well, it was very significant because the Old Testament priesthood was hereditary. The only way you could legitimately be a priest is if you could trace your descendants all the way back to the tribe of Levi. And oh my goodness, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And Moses didn't say anything about any priest coming from Judah. No, this is a priest of the Most High God, Jesus, just like Melchizedek. And so he just sort of appears. He just, nobody really knows like who his parents were and, and uh, when he died and if he died and, and, and so forth. And it's most significant. You can read about this in Nehemiah 7 or Ezra. Uh, there's no record of his birth or death. He just kind of appears. I don't know if you noticed in the news, but there's this uh, lady who's the head of the NAACP in Washington State or something, I can't remember exactly where, but she claims she's African-American, and they interviewed her parents on TV, and her parents are both Caucasian. They're like, that is my daughter. She's not African-American. You know, how can you establish your identity? And in the Old Testament, it was a very big deal for the priest to be able to connect. Well, Melchizedek is like Jesus. He doesn't have an ending, and he doesn't have a beginning. And again, I say Melchizedek was planted back there for our benefit to help us have confidence in the person of who Jesus really is. Um, The only other reference we have 
is about a thousand years later when King David in Psalm 110 uh, is moved by the Holy Spirit um, uh, to write these words. Again, uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's pretty interesting. About a thousand years after Melchizedek, David, King David, writes the Psalms. And again, he's referring to Christ as being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron and the Levites, but after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, a prophetic psalm about Jesus. And so, um, in, again, in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, when we think about this, uh, verse uh, 14, um, if you pick it up there, uh, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and uh, in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110. Um, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law can make nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, through the person of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And so I think this is fascinating, right? Jesus is... Uh, um, validated through an indestructible life, through the resurrection, if you will. Um, even though Jesus was born, he existed before he was born. And even though Jesus died, he exists after he died. He is our high priest. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for us uh, even now. And so God's promise to Abraham was that, you know, all the people of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. He's the big blesser of everybody. But when it came to Melchizedek, Abraham recognizes him as superior, he bows down, he uh, ties to him, he receives his blessing from him. Melchizedek is a person uh, that is a foreshadow of the person of Christ. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God continues a priest forever. What a great thing it is to have a priest who doesn't die, uh, who will be our priest forever and in whom we can relax. Melchizedek could not make people right with God. Melchizedek could not bring ultimate peace to people. But Jesus can and Jesus does bring peace and righteousness to us. He's able to give you both righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace have kissed in Christ, and that's the kiss that Jesus gives to his bride, the church. That's the kiss that we receive from Christ when we put our faith and trust in him. Righteousness based on God's grace and peace. And uh, Jesus didn't offer just bread and wine, but he offered his body, of course, to be broken on the cross in the place of our sins. And he offered his blood to secure for us an eternal life. What a great thing it is to have such a great high priest, a hope that's the anchor of our soul forever and ever. I don't know. Uh, I think probably all of us here have, uh, we, we all believe that Jesus existed and that Jesus went to the cross. But have we ever come to the place where we've surrendered our lives to Christ? 
Have we come to that place where we've acknowledged him as both our king and our priest? He doesn't just make things right between us and God for eternity, but he is our king. He's the one we follow. He's the one we trust. He's the one that we discern what righteousness is all about. And I want you to know that if you just acknowledge that Jesus exists, that's one thing. But today, you can submit yourself to the person of Christ and have confidence that your confession in Christ as both your king and your priest is as secure as all of history. Here God is planting this for us way back, 4,000 years ago now, so that we today could have confidence and surrender our lives to Christ. Right? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I so thank you for the Bible. Your word is really incredible. And when we think that this guy Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. We don't know. He just appears. And yet Abraham bows down to him. Abraham worships him, acknowledges that he's a priest and a king that's come directly from you. And we just know, Father, in our hearts, he's a prefigurement of Jesus who we've come to worship today. And I pray that you'll help us, Heavenly Father, to have such confidence in Jesus that we'll surrender our lives, and that we'll be generous with you, that we won't be immature, that we won't be dull of hearing, that we won't be sluggish, but that we'll be people whose light shines bright in the midst of the darkness, and that we'll be people who are anxious to mature to the point where uh, we're anxious to give back in response to all that you have given to us, and that as a result of that, Father, we will bring glory to your name, and we will not be bashful about our confession of the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.